This is Lori and Tori coming to you from the haunted corners of New England, and you're listening to the Something Wicked podcast, the show that delves deep into the topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. Dedicated to those that love to know all the spoopy and gruesome details about psycho serial killers, ghastly ghouls, and creepy cryptids with tales to make you sleep with the lights on. We are back today with part two of the West Memphis Three. If you haven't heard part one yet, please go back to have a better understanding of what we are covering in this episode. So just to give you a previously on quick cap, the West Memphis Three case was about three young boys, Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Chris Byers, whose lives were taken back in 1993. There were three other teenagers, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, that were charged and convicted with their deaths, and there has been much argument over the years as to whether they were guilty. We covered the story of the crime, the trials, and the aftermath of it all. Today, we are going to go even further in breaking down timelines that can give us better insight into this case. So buckle up, kids, and let's get it. Hello and welcome back to the show, and for those of you new to the podcast, I'll say thanks for tuning in. As we said in the intro, this is part two of the West Memphis Three case. I will again put a disclaimer on this episode as we are discussing sensitive topics in full detail involving children. Also again, we will be leaving links in the show notes to read through what we are presenting as well as tip line number if you have any information to help authorities in this case. And here we go. Woo! Just a forewarning starting out with this episode, uh, kind of went a little Charlie from its always sunny level in depth when breaking down the timelines and witness accounts of I the mean, boys' sightings. A little? <laughs> so bear with me if it sounds a little scatterbrained, but it honestly was driving me bonkers trying to make all the connections, but I choose to suffer for your education and entertainment, so you're welcome. Love you guys. <laughs> On May 5th, 1993, on night of the full moon in West Memphis, Arkansas, three eight-year-old children, Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch disappeared. They were last seen by family, neighbors, and schoolmates about 6 p.m. heading in the direction of a wooded area not far from their houses. The night and day proved busy for the police and their initial search was limited. One of those who would testify as to last seeing the children was also involved in the search. Their bodies were discovered the next day in a small patch of woods behind the Blue Beacon truck wash not far from the interstate. The victims had been beaten, cut, bound, and sunk in a ditch. Each child had dozens of injuries. At the time, authorities and media speculated whether the crime was related to other area child murders. Neighbors described ominous sightings of white and black vans. It was debated whether or not the discovery site was the site of the murders. Its unique geography, bound on one side by a bayou that needed to be crossed by a pipe, and on another by all-night businesses made entry difficult, 
However, no blood was found, in spite of one victim bleeding to death. The discovery site became the only designated crime scene and was presented at trial by the state as where the murders took place. Which, of course, doesn't make any sense. No. Because there was no blood anywhere. Yeah. There was a limited amount of physical evidence at the crime scene. Samples were taken from many suspects, which can be used to match DNA. Anomalous fibers were collected from the victims and their clothes. Not all the children's clothes were recovered from the discovery site. Two pairs of underwear and five socks were missing. A spot of wax was found on one of the victim's clothes. Other evidence was left behind at the discovery site. Perhaps most significant was the variety of hairs, including those found under the victim's bindings. The result of the DNA tests have been released. One of these hairs has been recently found to match the stepfather of one of the victims, Terry Hobbs, although this match is imperfect. The police began their investigation by canvassing the victim's neighborhood. Early on, the possible involvement of a satanic cult was taken seriously. Satanic panic! <laughs> Those interviewed in the search for the cult yielded contradictory or ridiculous stories. The investigation echoed an event of the more distant past, including the extensive amount of time chasing down rumors from children, including wild stories about a local teenager, Damien Eccles. Polygraphs directed the investigation, with individuals who passed being dismissed as suspects. A mysterious hitchhiker with a devil tattoo was noted, but never found. A child molester with a disturbing history was interviewed. A pair of filmmakers who had recently moved to the area were also questioned. During the investigation, 20 knives were taken into evidence from the crime scene, from a lake behind where one of the arrested lived, and from other suspects. They got 20 knives out of that fucking lake? Mm. Jesus Not Christ. out of the lake, just the one knife. But just in total, off of suspects off of family members stuff like that like oh those all God. the names collected yep three sticks gathered from the crime scene would play a role in the trials <laughs> i got some sticks oh my god as i stated in part one i have been invested in this case for over a decade and it put a lot of things in perspective for me and raised a lot of questions those boys deserve better they deserve justice and hopefully by putting this out it can help how could the police in this day and age pursue demons at the expense of an ordinary investigation? Why didn't they have extensive interviews with the parents of the victims? Even if they didn't consider them as a suspect, they possessed invaluable information on suspects, lurking strangers, and what they had seen during their search that night. Among the six parents and step-parents who lived with the victims, only John Mark Byers underwent a lengthy interview. This is two weeks after the crime. Oh my also. god, of course it is. Terry Hobbs stated both family and co-workers believed he was guilty from day one and continued to believe him guilty after the trial and convictions of the West Memphis Three. I wonder what. Yeah, this family infighting led him to shoot his brother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, and yet Hobbs was not interviewed at all in the months after the crimes. Remarkably, despite the intense scrutiny the case received over the years, this open secret, these accusations, stayed within the family, which I will be going into more detail about Terry later, mostly likely in part three this guy shot his so fucking brother oh yeah this guy is fucked up he's not a murderer mm. he can't be a murderer yeah. in contrast the police interviewed school children about rumors traveling to mississippi mark tree arkansas and other locations to add their stories to a score of tales from local children how could they have been so willfully incompetent laziness maybe mm -hmm. How could Detective Brian Ridge have heard Jesse Miss Kelly's confession and described it as so close to perfect we have to believe it? <laughs> I'm sorry. If anybody has listened to that confession, you know it's 
It's all bullshit. Yep. Coerced the, crap. Yeah, the confession was at best muddled, virtually free of information, or more specifically, information provided by Miss Kelly. In contrast, detectives Rich and Gitchell did describe injuries, weapons, and the geographic location of the crime. Like the again, they, they led him, told him to all everything. these things. Yeah. The, and then and then got mad at him when he didn't repeat it correctly. Yeah. They're like, just like, no, that's not right. This is what happened. And then when the, he said, oh, yeah, no, that's what happened. They're like, ah, we knew it. It's like, you dumb motherfuckers. It's like, this, oh this all spells bad cartoon. Fucking yeah. knock it off. The role of Dr. Dale Griffiths, the so-called cult researcher oh God, sworn in as an expert witness, first interested me in this case. Initially, he seemed to me a total blowhard investigating him further he proved to be a first-class charlatan his claims to expertise his misinformation about cults were comical how could people not see through him the moment he opened his freaking mouth this guy hurts my brain he represents the symbolic center of this case the satanic panic of the late 80s and early 90s was as ridiculous as the hundreds of other conspiracy theories which lurk at the corner of our lives in this instance however conspiracy madness reached out to ruin the lives of three innocent teenagers yeah the prosecution and the judge played fast and loose with ethics to shove this case through. They had to rely on evidence not presented to the defense in advance and to the testimony of young children of partially overheard conversations. Those in authority never seemed to consider the alternative explanation for why the case was weak. The accused were innocent. <laughs> no shit. Over 20 years have passed. With the additional passage of time, this case seems to have become a distant history, relevant to another day, to be added to the stories of Salem and other hysterias. These feelings belie a reality. This case isn't irrelevant. The injustices represented here echo in other forms, and if we don't learn from the past, we repeat it. Another seminal case of the time, the Central Park Wildling case, has fallen apart. Although four individuals confessed, all have been set free. For those in New York, this case was second only to O.J. Simpson in terms of local consciousness, and it was all a lie. Oh my god. But they set them free. Yeah. Going back to the events going on at the time of this, which goes into why I feel that even though this case went international, it still sort of got put on the back burner. May of 1993, Clinton had been present for just over three months. Two weeks before, outside the city of Waco, the FBI standoff with the Branch Davidians turned deadly with over 70 killed. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. That happened at the same fucking time. Mm -hmm. David Koresh. Mm -hmm. So, of course, shit like this. Yeah, goes under the wayside. Also, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls were storming their way through the playoffs onto a third consecutive championship. Jordan would announce his retirement to play baseball. Indecent Proposal was top at the box office. Cheers was about to show its final episode. Burger King crowed about its new program that brought food, mood, lighting, and music to the table, and popcorn while you waited. The Dow Jones stood at 3400 and the U.S. debt was in $4.3 trillion. Did Burger King stop doing the popcorn thing? No! But the whole point is that all this shit, this, this is just the media itself when you hear people talking about it. It's just, you know, oh, the country's going to die out. We're having this huge war. All this shit is happening in politics. Look at the pretty puppy. They always want to give you something else to focus on because everything's falling apart. Yeah. So they can get their shit back together. Not that they ever really get it fully together, but you know. Yeah. No, see, this is, this is why I'm a researcher. This is why I deep dive. Oh, yeah. Because you ain't going to figure it out just watching the news. <laughs> In West Memphis, May began with a soggy weekend. This continued a year-long dowsing that swelled the rivers and bayous. Farmers complained about the soggy ground postponing the planting season. Later in 1993 would be remembered in the Midwest as the year of floods. 
The first week in May was National Tourism Week, and the West Memphis Tourist Center was crowded with out-of-state cars. According to the West Memphis Evening Times, a total of 460,000 visitors came to West Memphis in 1992. Holy shit. The first annual Esperanza Bonanza <laughs> affair with amusement rides, barbecues, and catfish finished off the first week in May. The fairgrounds just north of where the children were found. <laughs> catfish or catfish? <laughs> <laughs> Overcrowding in the local facilities and threatened with a federal court order, municipal judge Pal Rainey released 10 prisoners from bail without bond. What a name. Another 20 had emergency bonds retained. Two suspects involved in the murder of West Memphis officer Clark White were being returned to Arkansas. It might be said that the investigation began with the missing persons reports. The police log records a call from the buyers at 8.08 p.m. Wednesday the 5th. This call was assigned to Officer Regina Meek. A notation is made that she responded on site at the buyer's residence also at 8.08 p.m. Although not recorded on the police logs, over the next hour and a half, Meek went on to fill out the reports on the other two missing children. The immediate police response was anemic. Meek and Officer John Moore spent a brief time looking for the children, and then there are no other notes of searching until 5.26 a.m. Officer John Slater interestingly searching at the discovery site. Officer Slater later explained that there was initially a miscommunication in the night shift beginning at 11 p.m. was not informed of the missing children. Oh my god, what a fucking ball to drop. Yeah, so he was there at the site they were discovered and apparently didn't find shit but also wasn't told that they were missing so wait why was he at the site yeah it's what's good, the point it's a good fucking question the parents complained of the delay in receiving official help in the search from john mark byers and may 19th statement approximately 11 p.m may 5th before i left the house i picked up the phone and i called the sheriff's department the second time i said look i've had one police officer out here helping me look for these boys i said now i called once and y'all told me what to do and i did that i said now i'm calling now and i want to know why the search and rescue squad won't come out here and help me look for my boy when the morning police shift came on duty the search moved into full force a helicopter flew overhead the bayou channel was dragged a list was obtained from the electric company of vacant houses, and these were being searched. The West Memphis Evening Times is published at 1 p.m. each day, and its May 6th edition described the frantic effort, stating, West Memphis police and volunteers from across the city began searching at daylight for three boys missing since yesterday afternoon. Volunteers would testify to combing the area on foot, on bicycle, and with three-wheel off-road vehicles. The exact circumstances behind the discovery of the children is a bit vague. The initial police statements referred to Officer Mike Allen finding a floating tennis shoe in the ditch in the Blue Beacon Woods. Later, this was amended to say that it was a juvenile probation officer who found the floating shoe. On scene at the time of the discovery of the children were Steve Jones, probation officer, Mike Allen, Detective West Memphis Police, Diane Hester, West Memphis Police, George Phillips, West Memphis Police, and Billy Sanders, also West Memphis Police. So another thing that we didn't discuss in part one is how much of the assault, attack, and possibly even death occurred not at the location they were found. And is it possible different individuals were responsible for the initial attack and other individuals were responsible for the murder or even if they were already dead for some kind of mutilation to the bodies after the fact? Are we dealing with several different suspects here? I did say in part one that I thought as much because of the different kind of knots on the bindings, yeah. but I'm getting head up myself. There's a lot of things wrong with this case and it's still driving me nuts. Anyway, <laughs> so 
for the purpose of this episode, we will go into timeline issues regarding the last sighting. There's so many issues. There's so so many fucking issues. West Memphis is the largest town in Crittenden County with a population read from 1990 of about 28,463 people. The county stretches from suburb and rich loam into small town and hardscrabble farmland. Its population is an even mix of black and white persons, including urban escapees, multi-generational residents, and those who resettle from the more rural surroundings. I'm sorry, what are urban escapees? I don't know. I would really like to know what the fuck that means. Yeah, it's a good question. Where they escape from the city. Right? Like, I can't take this shit anymore. <laughs> on some farmland in the middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> East bumfuck, to be exact. Although the town's residents overlapped with their rural cousins, city life in West Memphis differed from that of the other small towns of Arkansas, and sometimes in troubling ways. As one West Memphis police officer put it, in other parts of Arkansas, people shoot their guns in the air for fun. In West Memphis, they shoot at each other. Wow. Yeah. What a distinction. West Memphis has more than its share of crime. It is poorer than most of the suburbs of Memphis. As in many other towns on state borders, criminals who know how to work the system cross state lines to commit crimes and escape between the cracks of multiple jurisdictions. Two cross-country interstates intersect on the north center of town, making it a hub for drug trafficking and other smuggling. As with many southern cities, churches dominate the life of the community, their buildings appearing seemingly on every other block. Churchgoers often attend services during the week along with Sunday. Beyond that, there are innumerable special events and revivals. I mean, even over in uh, New London, it's kind of like that. You got churches on every freaking corner. Yeah. And then a a liquor store. Two doors down. Not shocked. (laughs) Not shocked. (laughs) The term Bible Belt was coined by H.L. Mencken to describe a mindset of biblical literalism that permeated much of the South. He declared Memphis, quote, the buckle in the Bible belt. Oh, God. Yeah, so they're hardcore. Still, perhaps it is a literalist mindset to see Southerners in such simplistic terms. In reality, the South has a dual personality of praising the Lord and giving the devil his due. The terms Hellraiser, Redneck, and Rebel inspire a pride in many. Going to church solves the soul, but raising a little hell is also good for the spirit. This duality is reflected in the local sports teams. In the city of West Memphis, the high school team goes by the name of Blue Devils. (laughs) Yeah. What? The last sightings of the children. So, to the last sightings of the children. (laughs) Oh my god. Timed at around 5 to 6.45 p.m. on Wednesday, the 5th of May, 1993. The key people, the victims, Stevie Branch, 8 years old, 50 inches tall, 65 pounds, blonde hair, last seen in blue jeans, white t-shirt on a black and red bicycle. Chris Byers, 8 years old, 48 inches tall, 52 pounds, light brown hair, last seen in blue jeans, dark shoes, white long sleeve shirt, carrying a skateboard. And Michael Moore, 8 years old, 49 and a half inches tall, 55 pounds, brown hair, last seen in blue pants, blue Boy Scouts t-shirt, orange and blue Boy Scout hat on a light green bicycle. I'm only going into these specifics because they do play a role. Okay. Later on. I know it sounds weird. A lot of this gets technical. Again, I apologize, but it, it really plays into the witness statements and everything else is why I'm going to avid detail. Okay. Their parents, Melissa and John Mark Byers which is Chris's mother and stepfather, Pamela and Terry Hobbs, Stevie's mother and stepfather, and Dana and Todd Moore, Michael's mother and father. Other key family members, Ryan Clark, 
13-year-old brother of Chris, and Don Moore, 10-year-old sister of Michael. Witnesses in court other than family, who described seeing the children that afternoon, Marlene Hollingsworth, a passerby, Deborah Otinger, neighbor, and Brian Woody, neighbor. For the door-to-door interviews and witness statements, Otto Bailey Jr. and Otto Bailey Allen III, Ben Crafton, Deborah and Robert Jeff Martins, Bobby Posey, Christopher Wall, and Kim Williams, all neighbors. Okay. The sources for piecing together a narrative of when and where the children were last seen are door-to-door interviews, witness statements, and court testimony. The first of these came as part of the police canvassing the area. Although the police were instructed to do thorough interviews during the door-to-door canvassing, often there were brief notes and many residents were marked simply as not home. (laughs) Nevertheless, some interviews were substantive. Some of these seemingly more interesting statements in the door-to-door interviews were not followed up with witness statements. Shocker. Many witness statements were fewer in number, and many of the relevant witness statements were not taken until months after the murders were committed. I bet you half of the ones that were uh, labeled as not home was our not home situation with the male people. Oh my god. There's four cars in the driveway, but nobody's home ever. It really is. Yep. It's like, we dropped this in your mailbox because there was nobody home. Bitch, there are four cars. We are standing outside having a smoke. You can see us. Literally. I can watch street. you see park us. your car for two seconds and be like, now nah, fuck this and <laughs> drive away. get out of the car. This is dangerous. Yeah, I watched somebody oh walking down fucking Main Street the other day. Mm-hmm. Like a mail carrier. Yeah. yeah. Like, you can get out but of your car with your fancy van, bitch. Oh my god. We're fucking into that. We are doing the case. <laughs> Not the stupid male people. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the court testimony centered around the prosecution's narrative of events, i.e. the defense did not attempt to introduce an alternative narrative on where the children were last seen. The relevant and uncontroverted background facts are the three victims went to school that day getting out at 3 p.m. and that Steve and Michael owned bicycles, Chris a skateboard. The bicycles would be later found in the bayou, not far from where the bodies were found. The skateboard was unaccounted for. So it was unaccounted for at the time and it never turned up ever anywhere, mind you. What? what? But how much effort was put into finding it anyway? That's a good question. Also, again, these are the only uncontroverted facts literally everything else is up to incredible amounts of speculation even when they were saying when they were discovered at first it was this detective then it was a juvie officer there's no there's so many definitive solid proof that any of this other shit happened except for the boys went to school and two of them owned bikes oh and maybe what they were wearing yeah that's it everything else that's because nobody's got their shit together oh (laughs) the victims houses are between three quarters of a mile to a mile and a quarter southeast to where the bodies were eventually found each of the following sightings took place in the children's neighborhood this neighborhood is separated by woods and a bayou from where they were found chris and michael lived across the street from each other these two did not play together often because of a supposed feud between their parents that i was unable to find any information on (laughs) there was just like this age-old fucking feud they just hated each other. I don't know why. <laughs> Cut his lawn too short. It looks awful. And Stevie's house was a quarter mile to the south of the other two. With the exception of Dana Moore, the other family members of the victims only saw the victims individually or else well before the final sightings by the neighbors. 
neighbors filled in more, albeit sometimes contradictory, details on the subsequent whereabouts of the children. Pamela Hobbs, Stevie's mom, said she was with her son until Michael came by and asked to go out to play with them. This was before 4 p.m., and she warned them to come back before she left for work at 5. Chris dropped by briefly, not sure if before or after Michael showed, watched some TV, then left. No statement was taken for the whereabouts of Terry Hobbs, Stevie's stepfather, until after he arrives at his wife's job at 9.20 p.m., informing her of Stevie's disappearance. Personally, I feel, really, especially if you legit think that your child is missing, I would immediately <laughs> drive to my spouse's work and go, um, honey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> our boy gone. Just saying. You're like, it's it's nine o'clock. That is not, not a, home. that is not a, you know, I'll tell her later, don't let her worry about it while at work. It's your child is missing. Who gives a fuck about yeah, work? exactly. Yeah. Ryan Clark, Chris's brother, said he was asked to meet his brother and let him into the house at about 3 p.m. He never saw him and then had to take off for an appearance as a witness at a court case at 4 p.m. <laughs> He was taken to court by John Mark Byers, his stepfather, and he got home at about 6 to 6.30 p.m., but by then Chris was missing. John Mark Byers gave the most detailed accounts of the events that afternoon. His encounters with Chris were few, but critical. He said he got home from a medical appointment at about 3.10 and waited for Ryan to let Chris into the house because he didn't have a key. I don't know why he didn't have a key to his own fucking house, but whatever. I mean, maybe it's one of those kids who's like, you're going to put it down somewhere and we're never going to see it again. Then some rando's going to have our key. Maybe. But th the point of being is that, no, he, yeah, John is saying that John did not have a key to his house. Oh, so yeah. 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 Oh, that's why he's mind. like, you got to let him in because you don't, we don't have a key. Why, why don't you have a key to your own house? That's weird. Anyway, Ryan appeared at 338. John waited with him until four, then took Ryan to the courthouse. He stated that he left the courthouse at about 5 to go pick up his wife, Melissa, from her job in Memphis, returning at 5.20. You with me so far? Yeah. Yeah, okay. He stated that back at home, because Chris wasn't home yet and he had to leave, he left a lawn chair propped against the kitchen window, propping it slightly open so Chris could get into the house. But a microwave cart inside the house ended up blocking the window so Chris was never able to get in. What? Yeah. There was a microwave cart, you know, those old rolling yeah. ones. It was blocking the window in the kitchen is what he's saying. So he couldn't prop up the window more to get into the house. It's, yeah, okay. <laughs> As John took off to pick up Ryan from court, he said he found Chris dangerously skateboarding in the middle of the road about four or five houses south on 14th Street. He said he took him home, spanked him, and told him to clean up the carport as punishment. He then left again to pick up Ryan, and when they returned, Chris was gone. Melissa Byers echoed John's story, although at times it's difficult to separate out what she herself saw and what she was relaying secondhand. She confirmed that Chris was not home when she was brought home. She repeats how he had been skateboarding in the street, although that's hearsay, but I can't really blame her for taking the word of her husband. That's yeah. just a normal thing. And he was spanked and told to clean up the carport. She adds the detail that he was eating cookies during this time, which was potentially important for a later time of death estimates. Okay. But this was never brought up again. Of course not. She was just like, yeah, he was eating cookies. Okay, but you didn't even see him. How did you know that he was eating cookies? John didn't tell you he was eating cookies. Mm -hmm. But anyway, <laughs> many of the statements of John Mark Byers have been called into question by followers of the case who consider him a suspect. For this time period, John's statements concur with his wife's. Now, again, I try to stay as unbiased as possible, as you know, but theoretically, if John was guilty and his wife didn't know, she would obviously still relay the information she thinks is true, which is relayed to her. 
Don Moore, Michael's sister, when their mother saw Michael heading north on 14th Street in the direction of Robin Hood Woods, sent Don after him. Although she didn't find him, she related that she saw one white and two black teenage boys coming out of Robin Hood Woods. One of them made a suggestion that she interpreted as an offer of drugs. <laughs> While her statement is not relevant to having seen the victims, does corroborate the statement of Kim Williams, which I will present in a little bit. Okay. As far as parents go to wrap them up, Dana Moore had the final sighting. She said she saw Stevie and Michael playing on bicycles shortly after school and that later she saw the three boys heading north on 14th towards the woods. She saw her son on a bike and Chris climbing aboard, so there were three boys on two bikes. Okay. From the Miskelly trial, Prosecutor John Fogelman asked Dana how far away the boys were from her at the time that she saw them, to which she stated approximately six houses. She said she saw them at 6 p.m. So six houses made the sighting of about 120 yards away, BT-dubs. In another statement, she said she saw them as they rounded the curve of that road, which would have been about 200 yards. But honestly, from that far away, she was sure she saw them. But my question is, how many kids rode bikes in that neighborhood at the time? I mean, yes, but if it's one of her kids, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. she would know. Yeah. The mothers of the victims each testified in court as to the last time they saw their sons. Also testifying were three area residents. It should be emphasized that the Robin Hood woods that some say they witnessed the children enter are a different set of woods to the ones they were found in. They were found in Blue Beacon Woods, albeit it is an adjacent set of woods, but still a different location entirely. All of these sightings are over a quarter mile away across the bayou from the discovery site. Okay. Arlene Hollingsworth, 42 years old, the next witness, again appears over and over in this case. Her nephew was a suspect. She placed one of the convicted, Damien, along with her niece, Dominique Tier, Damien's girlfriend, near the scene of the crime along the service road. She also gave an alibi to another of the convicted, Jesse, which she later recanted. Relevant to the topic, she stated she saw the children on East Barton Ave near the school. This was about 4.30 p.m. according to her statement, but then stated at trial that it was actually 5.30. Mm. Another person just, just can't get your shit together. Better and better from here. She is the most bass backwards motherfucker I have ever heard of in this case. It oh, is... fun. Ooh. And there's a lot of those. Mm-hmm. She said she was driving in the neighborhood, leaving her nephew, L.G. Hollingsworth, when she saw the three boys on bicycles. She said she almost hit one of the boys as they rode out onto the street. She was called as a witness in the Eccles-Baldwin trial. Her primary testimony was not regarding the timeline for the disappearance. Nevertheless, she was questioned about her encounter with them that afternoon. So, the problems with her sightings are several. <laughs> she said all three boys were on bikes, but they only had two, which, fair enough, does tie into what Dana stated about Chris climbing on Michael's bike. However, Narlene was making it sound like they each had their own. She said she was certain one of them was wearing green shorts and that the other two boys were wearing shorts as well, which we know is not true. They were all, all wearing, wearing blue pants, yeah. two of them being jeans, yeah. Going back to Dana real quick, if there were a lot of kids of boys' age that rode bikes in the neighborhood regularly, this could be problematic. But if it was uncommon, both of these sightings could be more accurate. But no confirmation was ever made of that detail. Significantly, going back to Narlene, she didn't mention any of them wearing a Boy Scout uniform that Michael wore. You'd think that would be a memorable bit of info. Oh, yeah. She said one of them had dark hair and was heavier set than the other two, which in reality, Stevie was the heaviest out of the three and he was blonde, like platinum blonde. So yeah. there's no mistaking his hair for a darker shade. 
It's telling that she said she stopped the car and told the children that they ought to be at home, even though it was mid-afternoon. Or how about the fact that she didn't even know them, let alone well enough to tell them that they should be home, but whatever. She did, however, give an accurate description of the boys' bikes, saying one was red and black, Stevie's bike, and one was light green, Chris's. Also, again, the pictures of the bikes were put in the paper and were on display in the courtroom during the trial, so make of that what you will. <laughs> As with the other neighbors who were witnesses, she described the intentions of the children, how they met up, and where they were planning to go. But she, like the others, never explained how she knew their intentions, and the police never probed any further on the matter. You think the cops would be curious about that? Yeah. How in the hell would they have any idea of the boys' intentions? Come on, people. Especially saying she sounds like just a fucking Karen yeah. at this point. <laughs> she, Especially stopping really and is. talking to some other kids. Again, I know it's yeah, it's in the nineties. <gasps> However, you still just don't tell a random be home. Like you don't even fucking know the boys. I understand if she was a neighborhood parent, she knew them. Right. You know, stuff or like if that. They That's were different. causing some sort of trouble, but they were literally just riding their bikes. Mm -hmm. At trial, she said other family members were in the car with her at the time of the sighting. But funny enough, none of the other members that were supposedly in the car with her mentioned this incident in any of their statements or testimony. So she was either lying or telling the truth with no corroboration to back it up. Also, did no one else see this interaction? It seems like based on the statement and others that are going to follow that this neighborhood was just dead. Yeah, right. I know the neighborhood they were in was smaller than the whole of the town, but you're telling me no one was out in their yard looking out a window, see a few boys almost get run over <laughs> like nobody? Seriously? I call bullshit. Especially seeing as everybody's fucking nosy as shit. At 4.30 or 5.30 mm -hmm. in the afternoon, nobody saw this shit? No, no, come on. With so many errors, why not just dismiss this as a false sighting? And since it's not near the time the children disappeared, why bring it up at all? Her story for the whole day, in general, was ridiculous. <laughs> she said that morning she brought her nephew LG to the Star Grocery Store to apply for a job. Then, after she dropped him off, she got into an accident and had to go to the insurance office at about noon. Then she piled up into the car to go pick up LG with herself, her husband, her son, daughter, and son's girlfriend in the car with her. Which, side note, Anthony, her son, said that LG already had a job at the Star and was supposed to work on May 5th, but he never showed up for work. What? Mm-hmm. So, she picks up LG, drops him off at home with the other five people in the car, and then almost runs the kids over. She also mentioned that when she stopped to yell at them, her daughter stood up in the back seat and mentioned to her mother who the boys were because she played with them sometimes. What? You're right, this does sound absolutely ridiculous. Yeah? Oh, it gets better. After this, she went home, got a call from her other daughter who was trying to separate from her boyfriend and find her own place, so she asked Narlene to go to this trailer park that happened to be the same one that Jesse lived in to look for a place to rent. So Narlene went up there that evening where she said she saw Jesse at 6.30pm, but then she changed that statement from giving Jesse an alibi to now it was the next day that Jesse was spotted at the trailer park, but not by her, by her kids. What? Mm -hmm. She also stated that she was told about the boys' disappearance by a friend at 6.30 on May 5th, so before they were even reported missing. because they weren't brain hurts. They weren't officially reported missing until after 8 p.m. Yeah. by John Mark Byers. So now she's saying that a friend told her at 6.30. This lady just sounds like she's a... Uh got some yeah. instabilities. Narlene did testify in court to this and other matters and her credibility was key to the prosecution's case. I'm sorry. 
what credibility? Yeah, really. If a <laughs> if a family member of hers is a suspect and her testimony doesn't match up and descriptions are all over the place and nobody can corroborate this interaction, where is the credibility? Seriously. Of the key pieces of evidence in the Eccles Baldwin trial, her accounts were the only ones that were acquired before the arrest. Oh my god. <laughs> She's so credible. Oh, oh my god. Fucking incredibly dumb. So, just because this whole debacle with Narlene baffled me, let's examine the Hollingsworth clan. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Pro up. Prosecutor Fogelman said that, quote, we've got the Hollingsworth clan who saw Damien walking on the service road, end quote. This was during the briefing of the victims' families on the evidence. The Hollingsworths were involved in this case in many ways, as witnesses to multiple events, as neighbors to both the defendants and the victims, as suspects and as alibis to the defendants, sometimes with a single individual playing multiple roles. <laughs> this screams conflict of interest yeah but did the prosecution care of course not no because it doesn't fucking help them three testified at the trials for the prosecution narlene tabitha and anthony hollingsworth another six family members were subpoenaed lg ricky and sarah hollingsworth dixie hufford and deanne and dominitier their convoluted involvement was matched by an intertwining family tree get ready for this bit folks during the Eccles Baldwin trial, Narlene states, quote, I am L.G. Hollingsworth Jr.'s aunt through marriage. It's just by marriage. So attorney Davison followed with, you're his aunt by marriage, but he's your ex-husband's son. How did this happen? What? Yeah. So Narlene married L.G. Hollingsworth Sr. early in life, divorced him, and then married his brother, Ricky Hollingsworth Sr. To further complicate matters, Narlene's sister Pamela married into the Hollingsworth family. Dixie Hufford, who would figure prominently in the events, was married to the senior Hollingsworth, but divorced out of the family. And Dixie was a sister of Deanne Tier, Domney's mother. My brain. <laughs> What's even better is if you see the actual chart pulled up. Only in fucking Arkansas. It is the proverbial, if you've ever heard that Jeff Foxworthy joke, if you know you're a redneck when your family tree doesn't fork. Like, <laughs> that is the Hollingsworth clan to a T. It's ridiculous. Oh my god. Staying in the family, going to Domini's account of the events that took place, since she plays a semi-crucial role in this case, the then-pregnant girlfriend of Damien gave an account on May 5th that placed her safely off the scene. She was first questioned by police with Damien and Jason the Sunday after the killings in the front yard of Jason's trailer. Dominie told Shane Griffin and Bill Durham that on May 5th, she, Jason, and Damien were at Jason's uncle's house around Dover Road mowing the lawn in the early afternoon. Then she stated she got home around 6 p.m. and was there the rest of the night, as verified by her mother. Durham reported Damien phoned his father to come pick him up from the laundromat at Missouri and North Worthington Road. They said they were picked up at 6 p.m. and Damien's father took Jason and Dominie home. Then he and Damien went home themselves. Brian Ridge interviewed Dominie at West Memphis Police Department headquarters on May 10th with Mary Margaret Kesterson of the Arkansas State Police sitting in. Ridge reported that she told the same story about going to Jason's uncle's, then her and Damien leaving to go to the laundromat, but to call his mother to come pick them up, not his father. She said this happened when it was just about getting dark. 
Now, remember, her original statement said that she got home around 6 p.m., so they called his mom at about 5.30. The sun set that day at 7.49. No, I was going to say, it's going to be like almost 8 o'clock So it was not dark at 5.30. No. Yeah. Anyway, when she got home, she said she walked the dog, came back, took a shower, and laid down. In one account, she says Damien called her, and another, she calls him at about 10 p.m. In this statement, she says that Damien told her that he was tired and he was going to sleep. But in another account, she and her mother both state that she was on the phone with him for an hour and her mother made her get off the phone because they were arguing. Also, side note, Ridge's notes also indicated that Damien's mom came to pick them up at around 7.45 to 8 p.m. So that would fit with what Domini said about it getting dark. Right. However, Domini's mother stated that her daughter was home earlier than that and by the time she came back with the dog, it was then 7 p.m. She knew this was the time because one of the show's time tracks that she and Domini always watched together was starting on the TV. I really hope you guys were able to follow all that. I know it's really scattered. I'm sorry. It's just like she was there now. She was here now. Now, the, Oh my god. <laughs> Lori, you're running out of red yarn. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. I have a whole nother bucket load. <laughs> in the back. We've already gone through like ten fucking spools. Come on, man. <laughs> discrepancies quickly grew in various accounts of the day police were first told that damien's father picked them up then damien's mother and finally the whole eccles family oh god time track started at 7 p.m well before dark in a later statement Dominique said she got home even earlier perhaps as early as 5 30 even though she supposedly called damien's mother 5 30 in later statements she makes no mention of a phone call in which damien claimed he was tired or going to sleep her description of that conversation in the single instance in which one of the four girls Damien claims he was talking to on the phone actually said they had a phone conversation. As I said in part one, the only one that testified, whereas the police completely ignored Jennifer Bearden's account of her conversation with him. Yeah. Damien also claims to have gone to the house of family friends that evening and afternoon, but well before 8 p.m. Domini took a nap not long after she got home and then argued with Damien on the phone at 10 p.m. This argument was supposedly about Jason's girlfriend calling Damien to cry about Jason and Domini was just not having that. <laughs> Domini gave an extensive final statement to John Fogelman on September 10th under subpoena. Also in the room were her appointed attorney, Gerald Coleman, her mother, Deanne, and Gary Gitchell of the WMPD. She explained she dropped out of the 10th grade because she was pregnant and described how she had moved around among various addresses, her father's home in Illinois and California. Fogelman asked Domini about Jennifer's relationship with Damien. She explained that Jason was going out with a girl named Holly, and Holly was Jennifer's best friend. She also stated that a girl named Heather was another one of Jason's girlfriend. So apparently Jason and Holly were going out, but they didn't get along, so they broke up and he started seeing Heather. Holly George, however, had in fact never been interested in Jason and had never been his girlfriend. What? I suddenly feel like I'm at my friend's house for a sipping bitch. Right? Seriously. Like, look at that. Look at this bitch, Dad. Spill the tea. <laughs> Dominie mentioned how Damien was also talking to Jennifer Bearden on the phone every day and using phone calls to Holly as a cover because Jennifer was 12 at the time. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. She told Fogelman that Damien had not spent the night before, so May 4th, because he had to go to a doctor's appointment the next morning, uh, spend the night at her house. They had made plans for Jason to skip school and for him, Damien, and Damien's friend Ken to go over to Dominique's house to meet up and then hang out at the mall. 
because they had nothing fucking yeah. else better to do. Their entertainment for the day was watching Jason mow his uncle's lawn. That was full entertainment for them. <laughs> Ken showed up at 7 a.m. and Damien around 1 p.m. Jason did not end up skipping school, so he showed up after. Then they went to his uncle's and so on and so forth. So because according to Dominique's timelines, there is no definitive accounts of Damien's whereabouts between 6 and 10 p.m. Mm. As far as Narlene seeing Dominique and Damien walking along the service road, Dominique stated that couldn't have happened because none of them ever walked along the service road for any reason because cutting across the highway was quicker to go to wherever they needed to go. Okay. And Jason would have been home at the time Narlene supposedly saw them because he watched over his younger brothers while his mother was at work. So the prosecution's argument that Narlene mistook Jason for Dominique walking with Damien couldn't have been a thing. Right. And last thing, Deanne, Dominique's mother, corroborated her daughter's story except that she said she didn't see anyone in the car with Dominique except Damien's mother and Damien. Okay. So it couldn't have been the whole Right. Not family. the whole truth. Yeah. Or his dad or, you know, right. anybody else except Damien and his mother. Moving on to L.G. Hollingsworth and his suspicious ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. 17 years old at the time. His name was actually LGBT dubs, but of course he had to be special breed and gave a new meaning to his name. So he got a tattoo that said little gangster and was going around telling people that that's what his name meant. Oh my God. Yeah. No, but his name was actually LG, just like the letters LG. Suddenly you're a fucking brand now. (laughs) You're going to make me a fridge. Anyway, (laughs) he lived in the neighborhood of the victims near the Garners on Holiday Circle, where John Mark Byers said he first went to search for Chris when he went missing. LG was a ninth grade dropout. He said he spent the day of the fifth looking for a job and finding one at the Big Star grocery store as a bagger. He was friends with Damien. He dated Lisa McDaniels, Dominique's best friend, though she moved out of town just prior to the murders. Side note, this is one of the reasons that Damien said he thought LG was weird, because LG had propositioned him to swap girlfriends at one point, but Dominique is his cousin, so what the fuck? Um, what? Yeah. Only in Arkansas. (laughs) When he saw Damien being arrested, he said that he would be the next one that was going to be taken in. He even said it. He's like, that's it. I'm going to be taken in. It's fucked. I'm done. Oh, man. Because that's, you know, not suspicious as fuck right there. Yeah, really. LG was the target of several tips, although the most incriminating could not be confirmed. So a tipster had told Detective Allen that she overheard that a Dominic and a Damien had killed the boys and that LG had taken and laundered their clothing after other callers stated that Damien had body parts of the children in a box and that LG supposedly had in the trunk of his car. Another caller stated that LG's aunt Dixie Hufford had said two boys and a girl went to the laundromat on Ingram on May 5th between 10 and 10.30 p.m. Wait, does LG have a car? No, he has his own car. Okay. No, so they went to the laundromat between 10 and 10.30 p.m. to clean up. They had mud and blood on their clothes that Dixie was related to one of them, a Hollingsworth. Of course. Okay. LG stated that he had borrowed the car of his friend Richard Simpson and went to the flash market laundromat to get Dominique's phone number from his aunt Dixie. Dixie confirmed that he did that so he could call Dominique to talk about a fight she had with Damien, that he was wearing a white shirt and tie when she saw him, and that she knew Richard's car and LG was not driving that one like he said. Another tip on May 11th came from the teacher of LG's Mississippi cousin. The teacher stated that eight-year-old Sarah Hollingsworth said she overheard that LG had come home with blood on him and clothes, that he was carrying something smelly in a box in his car. When police finally followed up on this lead in the middle of June, Sarah then denied she ever said this. 
Narlene spoke up about this incident as well. She said that LG appeared in the Lakeshore neighborhood the evening of May 6th. She said that her family members had told her that LG had a box with something smelly inside and he threatened the children if they touched the box. When confronted by the police about the box, LG told them that it had nothing more than test papers from a Votech school inside it. Why would it smell then? The why would he be carrying test papers around in a box and threatening children not to yeah, touch seriously. it? Yeah, seriously. The police also confiscated a knife and four pairs of tennis shoes from LG on May 10th. Four pairs of tennis shoes? Yeah, I don't know why. Were they all his shoes? I, I guess. I mean, they're, yeah, all four pairs of his shoes and a knife. I mean, I'd assume for testing. Yeah, but see, also, there was no uh, shoe prints yeah. or anything at the scene. Nothing. At least nothing that was reported because they dropped the ball on fucking everything. Oh my god, they did. So maybe somebody competent actually found some sort of yeah, thing but it was, and was never trying to lead up on it. It was never brought up. And though. then they're like, "You're dumb. That has yeah. nothing to do with this. Fuck you and your evidence." Yeah, <sighs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> so Richard Simpson, forty-nine, worked in building construction and was non-denominational preacher in his off time. He claims to have met LG through his ministry. LG actually lived with him for a time after the murder. Then they went to Kentucky where they rented a hotel room for two days. He says they did this so LG could meet up with his girlfriend who had moved there. His girlfriend's aunt called the police on LG and her niece so LG was brought back to West Memphis. Yeah, she was just like, nah, I'm not with my niece. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Richard, at first, told police that LG was with him the night of May 5th, then was taken in for a polygraph that he failed, and then he told them that LG had asked him to lie for him. Okay. Yeah. He was like, no, 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 he was totally with me, and they are like, you failed the polygraph. And he's like, so about that? <laughs> he asked me to lie. LG really does seem extremely suspicious, <laughs> but then again, so does, like, why, why is it that this case has to involve, like, 20 different fucking suspicious as shit people, but <laughs> those suspicious as shit people aren't any of the people who got convicted for it? <laughs> The prosecution later presented that LG had stayed with Richard from Thursday, May 6th through the weekend. During the first week of May, Richard was also hosting a Hungarian architect named Laszlo Benio, who told Detective Ridge that LG was not at Richard's the night of the murder. Laszlo also noted that LG did frequent Richard's home accompanied by a black male teenager. Note that Don Moore, Michael's sister, stated that she saw three teenage boys, one white and two black, coming out of Robin Hood Woods on May 5th. Yep. LG was arrested for forgery and burglary, and his cellmate, Timothy Cotton, stated that LG confessed to him that he and Damien had killed the boys in retaliation over a drug deal gone bad with John Mark Byers. But the police dismissed this statement on the grounds that Cotton was just trying to get time off of the sentence. Yeah, it's, it's kind of touch and go with... The sad part is, is like, with convicts because yeah. you don't you, you some sometimes they're telling the truth sometimes they're like I got no, offered nothing I got no time off nothing I just just I know this is wrong and it needed to be set and then there are times when it's like oh no that totally fucking happened where's my you know five years off now yeah John Mark Byers told police that he saw a stranger on a large racing type bike that was acting like he was helping with the search on May fifth that the bike had mud grip tires and that the man was slender, had really short, almost military short hair and a thin face. Sources claim that this stranger was Timothy Cotton. Ah. Wait. The plot thickens. It does. <laughs> what? Yep. Two women, Sally Brady and Gina Riccio, called police and told them that they were driving around looking for the boys on the 5th and saw Timothy go into Robin Hood Woods on a green and yellow bike at the dead end of Macaulay. 
They drove around Goodwood Circle, then about 45 minutes to an hour later, they saw Timothy again coming from the other end of Robin Hood, which is next to the Blue Beacon Woods where the boys were found. Mm. And he was wet and muddy all over and had heard him tell the search and rescue team that he had fallen into the bayou and was going home to change clothes. The women said he was a weird acting guy and just wanted to check him out. He was seen going into the woods around 10 p.m. and came back out around 11. A caller claimed that Timothy's sister suspected him of killing the boys. He was into self-mutilation and liked to hurt animals. Oh, no. He was also previously institutionalized for liking to play around with five to eight-year-old boys. But what she meant by that, though, it's, it's speculated. Like, some people say that he was a pedophile, and then some people were saying that he just said he liked to ride bikes with them, which is still creepy as fuck. But, you know. There's a huge difference between the two. We had a guy like that in our neighborhood, except it wasn't bikes, it was Yu-Gi-Oh cards. No, He had like a whole trunk full of fucking Yu-Gi-Oh cards and shit. That's, no, I'm sorry. My child would not be going near that person. Absolutely not. No, thank you. And he worked at the Blue Beacon car wash, right behind the Blue Beacon Woods. Timothy was among the first to be questioned. He was brought in on May 8th, polygraphed, and then released. Don't be suspicious. His intake sheet described him as 5'11", 152 pounds, and brown-haired. He lived several doors down from the buyers on Wilson. He lived with James and Carolyn Birch, who were recent residents at the former residence of the suspect Jeremy Nairns. This house was vacant and listed as part of the search on the day of the discovery. Notes from Cotton's interview were not available in his folder. Someone had taken them out, so we'll never know exactly what he was questioned about. Cotton also stated that LG told him that there were two others in the woods besides himself and Damien that night, which goes into play of later theories and stuff like that. It's it's really fucked up. Gary Ray Chadwick, a transient, was seen bicycling along the interstate at 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. on the 5th. See, literally everybody has a fucking bike. Yeah. Then later at Lehigh, a town outside of West Memphis at 10 to 10.30 a.m. the next day on the 6th. He was the first to be polygraphed regarding the murders. (laughs) His arrest record was checked, and it was returned with a long list of crimes for vagrancy, drunkenness, and petty theft, and he was dismissed as a suspect. Another blonde on a bicycle <laughs> caught the interest of the police on May 6th. Sorry. while in the Brooklyn Nine-Nine moment, title your sex tape. Damn it, title your sex tape. While in the area of Hamilton and Gavin, assisting in the search for the missing children, Sergeant P. Hooper observed a white male riding on a chrome maroon bike. He was about 5'7", ruddy complexion, and appeared to be mentally slow. Detective <laughs> Reed... <laughs> How do you get that from someone riding by you on a bike? What? That's so rude. My bicycle goes ding ding. <laughs> oh, I can ride it so fast. Look at my wheel spinning. This is my car. Oh, God. But see, that's the thing. It's like, if they can look at this man and tell he's mentally challenged, how in the mother fucking hell? No, no, no. Narlene. No, no, not Narlene. How did the cops tell that Jesse was? Uh, yeah, that too fucking serious they can look at this dude on a bike and tell that he is fucking special like what did he have down syndrome because like that's visible it's not even stated i don't know (laughs) oh my god plus also he shouldn't be riding a bike at that rate (laughs) detective ridge reported that this man was in the vicinity of the mayfair apartments riding his bike while the search was being conducted on the 6th he was id'd as daniel wayne leffler Age 32, blonde, 5'3", and 140 pounds. I swear to God, they're making up 90% of these names. Yeah, it sounds like they are. P. Hooper? I'm sorry. (laughs) What? 
he was just some dude that mowed people's <laughs> lawns for work and passed a poly by the police, so they also dismissed him as a suspect. So the police did have several people that they looked at, but pretty much all of them got pushed to the side. Fucking half of this this WMPD has to, like, worship the um, polygraph test. Yeah. What the fuck? No, if you actually looked at the charts, how many people- there's so many people that got polygraphed, and- they just I bet you they just got a brand new polygraph and they're like, we gotta use it on everybody. <laughs> We're gonna use it on you! <laughs> Let's get the miles out of this bitch. Did you really get me decaf coffee this morning? No. Liar! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Somebody hook him up. Polygraph. <laughs> it was your attention, wasn't it? <laughs> Circling all the way back to the neighborhood sightings of the boys. I know that was a lot. Deborah Otinger, 19 years old, also. <laughs> Stop! I know these fucking names. God. Otinger, I can't. I can't take it anymore. People for Otinger. <laughs> these are the most fucking redneck sounding names ever. Oh, yeah, wait. It's in Arkansas. It yeah, is. Holy Remember, shit. it's the buckle of the Bible Belt, so they are heart deep into it. Fucking Pee <laughs> <laughs> 19 years old Deborah O'Dinger also intersects at several points she helped in the search the morning of the 6th on June the 1st she gave statements to the police of rumors of cult rituals taking place in the nearby woods her 14 year old brother also reported activity at the end of June she made a statement recounting having seen the children the afternoon of the 5th she was supposedly one of the last to see the children alive her house is located at about a two-block lens from the entrance of Robin Hood Woods, but still a quarter mile from the Blue Beacon Woods where the boys were actually found. I'm touching on the occult activity, now, I'm not saying that this shit didn't happen. There's a lot of people in the area that reported this stuff happening, so it could be anything from people actually performing some type of rites or sabbats or something in the woods. Yeah. It could happen. Especially with to, there being a lot of woods in the area. Or people just sitting around a fire getting fucking drunk and then they overestimated shit. Yeah. It, it, this stuff does. Everything. Yeah, this does happen, but they just kind of took it to the extreme, is the problem. Because satanic panic. Yeah. Otinger, may, I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna, I'm saying, I'm saying Deborah, fuck it. Deborah made one police statement and testified in both trials. On June 30th, 1993, she provided a one page handwritten statement to the detectives. In the statement, she said she saw the three children in her front yard around 5 30 p.m. She wrote that her husband got home at 5 40 and also saw the boys. No statement was taken from the husband. <laughs> He was like, she already told you. I don't need to tell you shit. That's all I saw. Bye. Yeah. She recalled telling the children to get off her lawn. Get off my lawn. Oh my god. By the time she left for a dinner appointment at six, she wrote the children had gone into the woods. This is probably only a presumption as she did not mention seeing them go into the woods. Yeah. At the Miscali trial, she said that she didn't know the boys, but later identified them because of the pictures, and she remembered that Chris's brother had asked if he could mow her lawn the previous summer. But that only means that she knew Chris's brother, not him or the other two. Yeah. Then, at the Eccles-Baldwin trial, she said that she did know them because they were around her house quite a bit. She added the details that she saw them for a minute, then had to wait for them to move so she could back out of her driveway in her truck. Mind you, the woods were not visible from her driveway. She also stated that she never talked to the boys at all. So what 
Yeah. So in the in the Miss Kelly trial, she said that she didn't know them, but only knew only identified them because of the picture in the paper, and then she recognized them because she's like, "Oh, that's right, Chris's brother last year asked me to mow my lawn." Yeah. But again, that constitutes that she knew his brother. They're not fucking twins. No. And then at the Eccles Baldwin trial, she's like, no, I did know them because they're around my house all the time. And I know they went in the woods. I had to wait, you know, even though she can't even fucking see the woods from her driveway. Right. What the fuck? So. (laughs) More inconsistencies. 20-year-old Brian Woody says that he saw the victims from his car as they entered the southern set of woods from the end of 14th Street between 630 and 645. He also insisted he saw a mysterious fourth child. He also gave his statement three times to the police and testified at trial as to being the last one to see them. And they just constituted that he was officially the last one to see them. Because he saw them go into the woods. Without a doubt. (laughs) Mysterious. Let's just throw more um, sticks in the wheels, folks. In one statement, he said he just got off work from Radio World at 6.15. In another statement, he said he just got off work from Don Supershine at 6.30. The two establishments are connected, but I don't see how he would even mistakenly state which one he worked at. I mean, maybe he worked at both. Possibly, but still. If you're trying to go off a timeline, which one did you clock out of last? It's not- oh my god, it's not fucking rocket science, people. The summary of this testimony is as follows. I was heading down home when I approached 14th Street on Goodwin, and I saw four kids going to Robin Hood, you know, right where the road ends. He testified he saw these kids for about five seconds going 40 to 45 miles per hour down a residential street. He goes on saying, they all had their backs to me, so I couldn't identify what any of them looked like. I could not tell the ages of the individuals I saw. They were just young. He said that one had spiky hair, the same as the picture of Stevie that he later saw. He said that Stevie was carrying a skateboard, even though we know it was Chris that was skateboarding as attested by his stepfather. Mm -hmm. He says that he never knew of the boys prior to seeing them in the paper. However, he went straight to John Mark Byer's house to aid him in finding the boys. What? That seems like he like never knew them. Yeah. yeah, he never knew them, but he went straight for that house going, I'll help you find those boys. How would he know which one to go to? Exactly. I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, Please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! On September 7th, 1993, the police re-interviewed Betty Lou Martins and her son Robert Jeff Martins. In partial report of Woody's statement, they said they remembered seeing four kids, although in his initial statement, Robert said he saw only three. So he changed his story to coincide with Woody's testimony? Interesting. Hmm. 
Woody said he made the connection the next day because the spiky hair of Stevie caught his attention because his two-year-old son has spiky hair and when he saw the boys' photos on the news, he said that Stevie looked familiar and that he stated this at the Eccles Baldwin trial even though in his original statement he said the boys' backs were to him and he couldn't recognize them. He was never asked to identify the fourth child. He was also not brought in for the Miss Kelly trial to testify, but his statement was taken in as the last sighting of the boys. Mm -hmm. So real quick, if he was going 45 miles per hour on a curve <laughs> with a house blocking the view of the entrance to the woods, he would have been going 65 feet per second. So the time he would have been able to see the boys was relatively less than a second, but he's saying it was a solid five seconds. So the laws of physics clearly do not apply to this man's car. Did the world go in slow motion? Or he just like stopped like a yeah. creeper. Y'all live in a really fucked up neighborhood. And he's saying he just drove by at 40 to 45 and he saw them for a solid five seconds. So it's a music video. He just suddenly went in slow motion. <laughs> also, who goes 45 on a curve? Yeah. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> But again, the car is gonna flip. Physics do not match up with your statement, sir. No. Try again. <laughs> well, this is an episode of fucking Spidey and Friends. Oh my god! <laughs> Stop! I already lost enough IQ points. Stop. Based on the map, they were found in Blue Beacon Woods, which is by the Mayfair Apartments entrance across the pipe right behind the truck wash. But Woody is stating that they entered through the Goodwin Street entrance, which is at least a quarter mile away. Huh. I mean, yes, they could have walked through, but there's a lot of woods, rocky hills and others. So like, you really think those boys are going to bother to drag their fucking bikes across a quarter mile of shit. Not with then bikes, get up no. on a pipe, then go across the bike. No. In the door-to-door -door investigations, over 30 sightings of the children were reported that afternoon. Out of those, six of them mentioned the boys by name. Kim Williams said she saw Stevie and Chris go into the Robin Hood woods at 6 p.m. Then later, she saw three older boys, one white and two black, come out of Robin Hood. As mentioned earlier, same sighting of the three older boys by Don Moore. So someone completely different corroborating that statement who doesn't even know the first person. Uh-huh. Huh. huh. Otto Bailey Jr. and Otto Allen Bailey III. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to do that every time. It's just like sounds so distinguished. Ten years old at the time and attended the same school, said they saw Stevie and Michael, but not Chris, at 6 p.m. on their way to softball practice for Otto Allen. Otto Bailey Sr. was later interviewed as a suspect. Lilia Bailey, Otto Sr.'s wife, corroborated this statement. But a discrepancy in that sighting was that the boys were wearing backpacks and no backpacks were found at the scene. I mean, yeah, they could have been taken by the killer or killers, but no one else but, yeah, mentioned seeing them with person. backpacks, parents or otherwise. They they mentioned the outfits, they mentioned the colors of the yeah, fucking bikes, no the backpacks. skateboard, nothing about backpacks. The Baileys lived on Cat Street, all next to each other, that runs along Robin Hood, near the pipe, although it is credited again that Woody was the last one to see them. The households consisted of Otto Bailey Sr., his wife Lilia, Otto Bailey Jr., and his wife Sheila, and their three kids, Otto Allen III, Fallon, and Ashley. One neighbor of the Baileys considered Otto Bailey Jr. a suspect. Mrs. Comer, the neighbor, began talking about Otto Jr., stating that he had threatened to cut her son's penis off and shove it up his ass. Whoa. That is just beyond extra. 
don't be suspicious. <laughs> she stated that there were three suits against Otto Jr. filed by her and her husband. One is concerning an incident of him threatening her husband with a handgun. One is for loss of business. And one is for terroristic threatening. Holy shit. What oh do you mean? They have either, bombs in their house? Either he's just an extreme douchebag or we have yet another Karen. <laughs> she stated that she is aware of an abuse case and some type of drug cases. She also states that he would have been able to get the trust of the kids and then killing them after gaining their trust. The police, however, never looked into him as a suspect. <sighs> but how would he gain their trust, though? Yeah, right. It's never stated that he's a some friend. Of those candy cigarettes. Uh, just seriously. <laughs> I don't fucking know. Otto Bailey Sr., May 12th, 1993, received information from a female who called who advised that there is a person who lives across the street named Richard Stickler who is big on CB radios. Side note, when CB transmits, they can sometimes be picked up on telephones, radios, or the TV. This is why, again, I don't trust Alexa. The conversation mm. we were having earlier oh, yeah. today, like, I don't trust any of those computer shit. I'm sorry, I don't. They record everything. I know I sound fucking nuts to some people right now, but they record everything. Yeah, they actually do, which is really stupid. And they say some creepy ass shit <laughs> in the middle of the night. Like one one of the stories I read where some woman heard a little girl giggling at three in the fucking morning from her Alexa. It's like, why? Why does that happen? So I used to have several of the Echo Dots and I had them set up all around the house. And mm -hmm. the one in my room specifically would just turn on sometimes you would yeah. hear the wake up noise which is like the bing and then it would turn on and then yeah. nothing and then it would turn back off that's recording that's a recording sound it's weird well usually that's a the bing is right before it does start recording yeah. or responding so it was almost as if it had heard the wake up word yeah no see and that's what yeah. I mean. another, another one was saying uh there was another thing in the forum saying that uh there's a woman who heard that sound and it, she was like, that's the thing where it turns on and starts recording. And she's like, why are you on? Why are you recording? And it responded, I'm trying to learn things. And she unplugged the bitch and just put it in her garage. And she's like, nope. That's terrifying. Yeah, see, that's why I don't trust this shit. Yeah, that's why mine are now unplugged in their boxes <laughs> in the basement. I don't do Alexas. I don't do ring cameras. None of that shit. Fuck it. Fuck it all. No. <laughs> <laughs> the annoying part is I want to do like the camera thing from outside, but I, I'm too terrified. Yeah, no, especially after all the shit I see mm -hmm. too with that. No, absolutely and then some of not. Story times that we've done. Nope, yeah, no, no, shit I'm fucking good. Like the fuel. very first one we did. Yeah, no, I'm awful. sorry if there's some creepy possessed bitch outside. Guess what? My doors are locked. You can't get in. I don't care. <laughs> you stay the fuck out there and be weird in the street. Go ahead, honey. You do you. <laughs> I'm gonna go to sleep now. <laughs> It's and right. never our know street, you were there. Our street is pitch black. You wouldn't be able to see shit anyway. Oh, that's 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 not terrifying at all. I know, right? Well, it's like right after our house, it goes to pitch black. Anyway, oh my god, stop. <laughs> so the collar. So at night it looks like there's no more neighbors. Oh my god, stop, Tori. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> Coming from someone who comes home at night all the time. Can we get back? You started this rant. <laughs> Did not shush. <laughs> you made your bed. So the caller advised that on May 11th, her daughter overheard a conversation with a guy parked across the street. She thinks his name is Otto Bailey. She heard him over his CB talking to an unknown person saying, quote, I'm going to kill your expletive ass. Yes, it says expletive. I'm going to kill your expletive ass like the three boys that were killed. End Whoa. quote. 
What? Yeah, the caller stated that she knows Otto Bailey lives on the street behind the location the boys were found, and she knows him by his maroon van with a large antenna. So she was threatening him? What? That's what it sounds like to me. Like, I knew it was you. I know it's them you talking some shit. Whoa. Like, like, did she think he was the killer because he supposedly said this? I don't, I don't know. It doesn't really go into further detail on that call. Yeah. Moving on. Detective Birch interviewed Otto Bailey Sr., although dismissed his threats as being due to having a big mouth. <laughs> he says, quote, at three o'clock on Wednesday, the 26th of May, I met with Otto Bailey at my office here at the police station. Mr. Bailey was not here at my request, but from municipal court. The interview of Mr. Bailey was done without any problems. He answered all my questions and had nothing to add that was not already in the news or the papers. The day of the homicides, he was at work or home between six o'clock and dark. He will have to check for the time he left for work. He stated he knew the boys from the area and had seen them riding their bikes on the street, but not that evening. He did not know the boys' names. Mr. Bailey is known to me as a big mouth on the CB radio and enjoys making other radio operators mad by trying to get their goat. He was shot by a trucker over a radio argument a year or so back. Wow. Oh my god. So he pissed off some dude so much that he shot him. What did he say? Over the CB radio. I'd like radios. to know. And then, like, the CB radios <laughs> go a lot to, like, the people who are going back and forth and trucking. So who did he talk to, though? Is this, like, across from the country or some shit? Like, he hunted his ass down. I mean, they like, are, like, these what? are truckers. They do go cross fucking country. No, I know that, but what did he say to him? Uh, I would like they to They got know. him to get shot. He just seems like an asshole who likes to stir the pot. Uh-huh. <laughs> Otto Bailey Sr. had several criminal records carrying prohibited weapons, contributing to delinquency of a minor, possible controlled substance. Oh, God. That was back in 81, 85, sale of a controlled substance, a DWI, 1990, possession of a firearm. He plea bargained in 1999 for aggravated assault possession of weapon, got a suspended sentence of 36 months and a $1,500 fine. After several reports from children of them being threatened by a man in a white van, the police put out an APB on the van. They found it, and it belonged to a man named Rex Hester, who also lived on Cat Street. He is the husband of Officer Diane Hester. Okay, so now we have cops harassing little kids in the neighborhood? I mean, it's not the cop, I'm, it's the husband. But, but like, still, she I'm, should be able to do something about still that. Still doesn't shock me. No. No, actually, you're right. <laughs> 12-year-old Bobby Posey stated that Chris had stopped by his house after Chris's father whipped him. Chris stated that he was running away. Bobby stated that John Mark Byers appeared and threatened to whip Chris again. No follow-up statement was taken from Posey. <laughs> so, and he did, like, he did tell, uh, John did tell police. He's like, yeah, I whipped him with the belt because yeah. I caught him skateboarding when I told him not to and all this other shit. Chris Wall, 19 years old, on East Barton, stated he saw Chris Byers 6.45 to 7 p.m. at East Barton in Macaulay with a blonde on a bike with red spray paint on it, heading towards Robin Hood. In a later statement, he said, quote, At 7, I saw the Byers kid and the kid who lives across the street on the street near his brother's house going towards Robin Hood, end quote. Both were described as on bicycles. Chris Wall's brother lived on West Macaulay, which intersected East Barton, not far from Chris Wall's house. Wall knew Chris and was named as a potential suspect, and in turn, he named John Mark Byers as a potential suspect. Okay. 
some of these sightings I listed were presented in court. The thing that baffles me is that, to my knowledge, to go along with these potential sightings, none of the witnesses were asked if these were typical activities of the boys or any children, for that matter, in this neighborhood. Even accepting the prosecution's theory, they were only seen heading in the general direction of the woods. Yeah. The prosecution presented the crime as premeditated and planned, suggesting that the children were meeting their murderers. Confounding the matter further, many of these reports have some problems, details that change over time, or those that are factually incorrect, such as the wrong number of bicycles. Several of the witnesses elaborated their stories with unknowable details, including the intentions of the children or what happened after they were seen. That nobody could fucking know. Yeah. There seems to be an inverse relationship between how well the children were known and whose statements were key to the prosecution's theory. Other than Dana Moore, all other six who saw the children and identified them by name placed Michael Moore and Stevie Branch separate from Chris Byers. These statements reinforce one another. What should be the final judgment on these sightings? Do these discrepancies represent the normal amount of inexactness to be expected by witnesses, or did at least some of these people not see the children at all? Did they confuse another set of children with these ones, or possibly a different day? Were some of the witnesses just interested in the limelight of a famous case? I am inclined to go with the strength of the neighbors who identified the kids by name and not by mere tentative means such as knowing the brother of a victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's one person here we can just kind of, like, throw out everything that she has to say. Yep. Based on those questions and my inclination, I did an analysis of the witnesses and sightings, starting with Dana Moore. Good. Although she saw them from a distance of 100 yards, she knew the kids and would certainly recognize her own son. But this sighting is still a distance from the woods. Deborah Otinger, fair. A little shaky on some of the details, including only seeing one bike and how well she knew the children. Her story changed over time and included details she couldn't know, such as seeing them entering the woods. Unlike several other sightings, however, she said these kids were near her when she saw them. Narlene Hollingsworth, poor. <laughs> In other circumstances, her statements would probably have been ignored because of the inaccuracies and because it was not near the time or alleged place of disappearance. However, other parts of her testimony were critical for the prosecution's case. Brian Woody, very poor. Nothing from his description of how he saw them makes it credible that he did see them or could identify them. Because he is saying that he saw four kids. Their backs were to him. Yeah, nothing. He saw them for a whole five seconds. <laughs> going 45 miles per hour. Around a curve. I think he just wanted to be heard. Yeah. I he think wanted to so throw rude. his voice in the pot. Kim Williams, good. Ben Crafton confirmed she was with them. There were other sightings of Michael and Stevie together, also supported by the statements of Dawn Moore. Another neighbor, Christy Blanchard, described two of the boys on bicycles and described their clothes correctly. Otto Bailey Jr. and Otto Allen Bailey III, <laughs> good, supported by the statements of those who saw Stevie and Michael together without Chris and those who saw Chris without the other two and supported by Lilia Bailey. Chris Wall, good. He knew Chris Byers. The statement was supported by Bobby Posey, who saw Chris Byers in this area. One difficulty is that his statement is ambiguous. Let's dissect Chris Wall a little bit to get a better understanding of why I said that. Chris Wall describes seeing Chris Byers with a blonde, both on bikes, while knew Chris, and according to information and a tip, he also knew the Hobbs children. But who is the second one on the bike? 
According to the door-to-door notes from East Barton, 6.45 to 7 p.m., saw Chris on East Barton and Macaulay, blonde with Chris, red bike, both spray-on paint, going toward Robin Hood. I know that sentence sounded weird, but it's from jotted notes on a pad, so I guess the cop pieced it correctly in his head or something. <laughs> Okay. That was it's kind of like one of those saw Chris red shorthand. bike short yeah. yeah, shorthand. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. From the interview notes, Wall said, quote, at seven PM I saw the buyer's kid and the kid who lives across the street on the street near his brother's house going towards Robin Hood, beginning to get dark. Also from the interview notes, Wall stated, I got out about six forty five PM or maybe seven PM. My dad picked me up and we went home. On the way we saw the buyer's boy and one other boy. They were on bicycles in front of Mayfair on Barton. They were going towards Robin Hood Hills. Ah, so he stated that they entered through the Mayfair entrance, as opposed to Woody's statement of them entering through Goodwin. That kind of makes more sense to me as to where they were found. Yeah, I mean, there's that and the fact that um, the other guy, Woody, was absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But first, the notes unambiguously state that he saw Chris Byers and that both kids were on bikes. Was the second person he saw Stevie? He says the person was a blonde, but he probably knew Stevie since the tip against him came from Pamela Hobbs, Stevie's mother. Chris Wall lives on Goodwin. They would have trusted him, and Pamela mentioned that he had propositioned babysitting her four-year-old daughter prior to the murders. Ew. Uh, yeah. No, Wall- that Stevie wasn't blonde, was he? Yes, no, no, no. Stevie was blonde. Oh, okay. No, Wall lived on Barton near Weaver, not close to the intersections of Barton and Goodwin. This note, however, was included with Wall's file, along with a police note stating, unknown caller who stated that Wall liked to hang around younger kids. Personally, this feels like a case of neighbors being petty with each other and calling tips on one another, which that was not the time. Yeah, seriously. But anyway... Going back to Wall's statement of the red spray paint on the bikes, Stevie's bike was black and red, but it was new, and you can tell by the photos that the red was not sprayed on. Wall states that he saw Byers with a blonde. Initially, this would make you think of Stevie, but Michael lived across the street from Chris Byers. Now, the kid who lived across the street from Wall was blonde, who lives on West Macaulay, which is where he said he saw Chris. Chris being separate from the other two boys is also supported by the witness who saw Michael and Stevie on Wilson, Goodwin, and Cat Street by Bobby Posey who saw Chris near Wall's house. So it seems like they were all headed to the same destination to meet up with and there yeah. was another kid. So it's this is what I mean. It's like it's kind of... My question is what exactly... So you probably have a better grasp on this than I do because yeah. things are kind of scattered. But yeah. what was the timeline on those other three kids coming out of the woods? That was around, I think she said 5.30? Okay, so like way before. Yeah, it, it's just, it was originally when, or it could have been before that. There was never, I don't think there was an actual definitive time. It just said when Dana sent her daughter to go search for her brother. Okay. And her daughter was like, no, I didn't see him, but these three boys came out of the woods. Hmm. So, I, I don't know. Because it was two black kids and a white kid. Mm -hmm. I wish that they had said what color the white kid's hair was. Yeah. Because it might have been the blonde boy. Yeah. See, and then going into this, a lot of people seeing this, like, random blonde on a bike. Mm -hmm. So other reports of a blonde boy on a bike. On Macaulay, Ira Ingram saw one boy, blonde, on a bike between 11 and 11.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Heard noise and dogs were barking on a hill where they crossed about 7.30. I mean, this can't be the child you saw. They were gone by then. There was another sighting on Wilson Avenue. White male, mid-20s, on a bike, May 6th. Approximately six feet tall, sandy blonde, medium length hair, blue jeans, plaid shirt, 
Saw him about three different times, once walking, twice on a bike. So maybe that's who Ira saw? That's not a child. No, see, that's what I mean. Like, she said it was just a blonde on a bike. She didn't right. specify whether it was a child or an adult. But that's true. Otto and Sheila Bailey on Cat Street said they saw a heavyset 18 to 20 year old blonde on a bike with a basket. And the same young adult was seen another time cutting grass on Cat Street. So maybe it's that random person. Maybe. I don't know. Like, like, if he was in the neighborhood, shouldn't he be able to be identified by somebody? Yeah, it was also 11 o'clock at night. Of people. When, they, when she said she saw him, it was 11 at night. Hmm. I'm sorry, I went so far into that, but honestly, that's the normal process of my brain with this yeah. crap. It's like, if this happened, well, no, did she see him or did she see him? No, no, yes, no, yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh. <sighs> Back to the analysis. Bobby Posey, good. He knew Chris Byers. The information that John Mark Byers had whipped Chris was not privy info that evening, supported by Chris Wall and indirectly by those who saw only Stevie and Michael together. Which, that is a crucial bit of information, by the yeah. way, because nobody but the police knew when John stated later on right. that he had whipped Chris. He wasn't going around the neighborhood telling everybody. Mm -mm. So that's kind of yeah crucial information. I mean, I know it was a common thing. I think they were friends and maybe he told them before yeah. that it happened because that's how he did corporal punishment. Mm -hmm. But still, on that night, it's kind of a bit of information you don't want to pass up. Mind you, less reliable statements that were actually taken into account by the police were never followed up on as to whether the witnesses saw the actual boys or other neighborhood kids. They also pushed aside more credible statements such as Jamie Johnson, who saw all three boys near the Mayfair apartments just outside Robin Hood that night. An estimate on what time they were there or information on how he knew it was the victims that he saw was not presented in his interview. Of course not. Taking any of the statements at face value, the kids could have been looping and backtracking. Right. Because it was, it's very, if you look at the map, it's a very circular neighborhood. A place where they could be doing laps. Right. You know, okay. going up. In the, so it's, it's kind of, this is why things are inconsistent with who saw who at what time. And because they could just where be doing fucking circles and yeah. driving all the neighbors crazy. I don't know. <laughs> any final determination of where the kids were last seen has to negate some of the sightings as spurious while any individual sighting and time could not be taken with a sense of exactness multiple sightings do tend to reinforce one another there are multiple sightings of the kids along wilson goodwin and into robin hood woods and at the bailey house along cat street the large majority of the sightings have the kids heading in the same general direction, north and to the west, in other words, in the direction they were eventually found. Although still quite distant from the area, most of these sightings were of Michael and Stevie alone. Using the progression of the kids to the north and to the west, and allowing for inexactness in time, the last sighting would be that of Otto Bailey Jr. and his son in front of their house. They stated that Stevie and Michael were headed along Cat Street in the direction of the Mayfair Apartments. Okay. Which is the entrance to the Blue Beacon Woods. Yeah. Also curious, if they're hanging out with multiple kids coming and going, and again, these are eight-year-olds going house to house and asking if so-and-so can come out to play, is it possible that there was this fourth kid? Yeah. And that's the fourth boy that was sighted, possibly Aaron Hutchinson. He did say they hung out a lot and liked to go to the woods, but then again, his testimony was an obvious case of coaching, so there's that. Oh, that was that little boy yeah. that came in. Okay. Where he's like, they made me drink blood and they took yeah. me to the what? Yeah, that kid. He did say that they all hung out together in those woods. Right. 
There was another man that was interviewed a handful of years back that claimed he was the heavyset boy in the green shorts that Narlene saw, but it was never fully proven. Hmm. So this next part is going to get real technical, so bear with me. Wee. <laughs> Chief Investigator Gary Gitchell posed an 11-question survey and sent nine officers out to canvas the neighborhood. The bottom of the survey read, make sure all of this information is written down. This didn't happen. Of course not. In order to analyze the door-to-door interviews, I divided up the canvassing into categories. Total residences, houses listed as vacant, response categories, no answer, or questionnaire. The total residences were the total number of addresses listed in the door-to-door sheets. There are some houses in the area that are not included in this county, i.e. some addresses were skipped over. For example, the address for Aaron Hutchinson's previous address is not mentioned in the door-to-doors. It does not make it to the total list in the analysis. Other addresses which were skipped over were determined by comparing the door-to-door list to the city directory. The reason some houses were skipped is unknown. The skipped over houses were few in comparison to those with some notation. Hmm. Residents listed as vacant. These are the only houses specifically listed by the officers as being vacant. There were two instances of houses listed as vacant on one visit by an officer and then had interviews with another officer. These were not counted as vacant. Total houses minus vacant was used to calculate the percentage of responses. Responses in general residence was categorized by its maximal response. By this, I mean if on occasion an officer made notes of no info and another officer marked down a substantive response, that residency would be categorized by the longer response. No answer. A residence was counted as no answer if an officer put down no answer, N-A, or only a house or apartment number and no further info, not even the name of the residence. A residence was counted as no information if they gave no info and or only the name of the resident. This was the most common response. Of course. Short answer. A residence was counted as a short answer if the additional information written by the officer could be summarized in a single sentence. Longer answer. A resident was counted for this if the additional information required more than one sentence to summarize but still was only about a paragraph. An extended answer was counted if the answer was more than a paragraph or equivalent to that in scope of the questionnaire. And the questionnaire was counted for if the questionnaire was either filled out formally or in a numbered format or the same info without the question numbers. Hmm. Get all that? Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. (laughs) So here's the numbers for that canvassing going by street. East Barton, 82. Wilson, 30. Holiday, 33. Macaulay, 17, North 14th, 37, Goodwin, 43, Goodwin Circle, 20, Cat, 30, Proctor, 13, Little Elton, 11, Ferguson, 15, Roy Pugh, 15, Mayfair, 80, Mayfair North, 100, all this totaling in 526. This included 180 apartments in the major buildings and 346 houses. Jesus Christ. This is not a fun thing to do. <laughs> I hate statistics so much. Yep. 11 residences were listed as vacant. Six of these in Mayfair. This is probably an undercount and other vacant residences were listed as no answer or not listed at all. A total of 124 residences were no answer and the police have no response lists. These houses had failed to answer with the initial pass and the doors were knocked on again, reducing the no answer rate. Other residences were only queried once. 164 residences 
were visited at least twice, usually because there was no answer the first time, including all visits. 201 residents were listed as no answer. This number was reduced with repeat visiting. Mm -hmm. For 242 residences, no info was given. One reason could be because they had no info. However, this wasn't always the case. Often the amount of info given depended on the officer. This can't be stressed enough given how they bungled the entire thing, in yeah, my opinion. seriously. One officer would fill out a lot of info for the particular household, even info that was likely irrelevant. Another officer would give no info as the response to almost all houses visited. The problem with this approach became apparent when the same house was sampled more than once. Sometimes one officer would say no info or even vacant, and another officer would get a potentially vital bit of info or even fill out the entire questionnaire. On one pass, Danny Laird was listed as no info. On another, he thought he cited John Mark Byers as a suspect and passed on the info. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, so laziness. Just uh, straight up fucking laziness. 68 houses gave brief answers and another 17 gave long answers. The questionnaire was filled out on 60 houses just under a 12% rate. Another four residences had extended answers as long as one might expect on the questionnaire. Probably related to the officer, but the best canvas street was Proctor, with questionnaires filled out for 10 out of 13 houses, second was Ferguson with 11 out of 15, and worst was Mayfair North with 44 no answers and 43 no info out of 100 residents. Oh my god. Yep. On the Oxygen Network, they did a WM3 show which addressed some of these issues. A post from Oxygen.com, March 28th, 2020, states, quote, who is the last person to see the victims alive? A witness named Carlos Seals said he saw the three eight-year-old victims on the day they were murdered, riding their bikes into the entrance of Robin Hood Hills, end quote. The Forgotten WM3 is streaming now on Oxygen and is trying to find justice for all three boys in this case. Part of that mission includes pinpointing who saw the boys last before their mysterious killer. Host and investigator Bob Ruff theorized this witness could be one of two people, Jamie Clark Ballard or Carlos Seals. Jamie Clark Ballard lived a couple of doors down from Stevie's family. She stated in a 2009 affidavit that she saw all three boys playing in her backyard the night they were murdered from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. At around 6.30 p.m., they sped off on their bikes. She declined to speak with Ruff for the show, however. Of course. Carlos Seals was in junior high school at the time of the murders. Police spoke to him during the initial canvassing efforts, but Ruff said that the paperwork didn't note what he actually told them. Ugh. Ruff tracked down Seals, who told him, quote, I think I may have been the last person to see them the day before, you know, the incident. Seals told Ruff that he saw buyers with his two friends on bikes around 5.30 p.m. or 6 p.m. And that they were all carrying sleeping bags. What? Yeah, this is a new thing. Now they're carrying sleeping bags. Seals claims that the boys said they were going camping in the woods. If the sleeping bag detail is true, it's an element of the case that has never been reported before. Yeah, really. A few issues here. These are eight-year-olds. Eight-year-olds obviously have a different kind of friendship than adults. For example, if one of them is being beaten by a stepfather and he wants to run away from home, would they all agree to camp out in the woods as support for him as he was trying to figure out how he was going to run away? I mean, that's a possibility. They're all like, you know, we got you. Yeah. Kids kind of have that type of oh, friendship, yeah. whereas adults were like, mm, you know what, man? I, I know that sucks and I'm going to help you. I may kick your dad's ass, but I'm not going to run away with you. That's all you, bro. <laughs> like, now, if you're gonna elope, you have fun with that. <laughs> Another witness, an associate of SEALs, Bobby Posey, told Ruff that Chris came to his house around 3.30 p.m. that day to tell him that his dad had whipped him and he was going to run away from home. 
And if Bobby Posey is possibly involved in this and maybe even steals, would they make up these stories to cover for themselves? I don't think it was Bobby because if he was fucking 12. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's possible 12-year-olds have done shit like that before. Right. However, Ruff's analysis states Steele's timeline of the events conflicts with Ballard's sighting. So Ruff tried to figure out which one he believed to be more credible. By speaking with Byer's brother, Ryan Clark, Ruff also learned of another possible discrepancy in Ballard's statement. On the day of the murders, Ballard said she walked home from school with Clark, but he told Ruff that was impossible because he went to court for an unrelated matter directly after school. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, why did John Mark Byers tell police that he told Ryan to get Chris to make sure he got into the house? And didn't he wait for Chris with Ryan until four when he drove Ryan to the courthouse? That's what he's saying. Like yeah. He's, so that's not directly after school. No. At the latest, school got out at three that day, so either John or Ryan is lying. Ballard claimed in her affidavit that she spoke to Clark about Byer's death at school the following day, which is a conversation Clark said never happened. In fact, Clark called her recollection false and dreamed up, claiming he didn't go to school the next day, which kind of makes sense because school starts first thing in the morning. The boys weren't even discovered until 1.30 on the 6th, and you'd think he would be out looking for him. Exactly. There's a lot of Unless they mean the 7th. I don't fucking know. Like the day after they found out they were murdered. But still, like, why would he be in school if his little brother just got murdered? Exactly. There's no point in that. All of that is very... Horseshit. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Because Clark's court appearance was corroborated by police records, Ruff thinks that Steele's account was the most accurate. He says, quote, Of all the people I've spoken to in my investigation, I believe that Carlos Seals was the last credible witness to see the boys alive. Moving on to the fourth boy theory, this theory might, if true, might actually explain a certain amount of contradictions and possibly even vindicate Narlene Harlingsworth, who many consider not credible. (laughs) Myself included. Yep. So this is also from Oxygen on March 28th, 2020, quote, who is George Taylor? The man who claims he was with the West Memphis three victims on the day of the murders. George Taylor said he was the fourth boy traveling with Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore before they were killed, end quote. Hmm. While sifting through canvassing notes made by the police at the time of the murders, Ruff discovered that there may have been a fourth boy traveling with Branch, Byers, and Moore on the day that they died. In one interview, a West Memphis resident, Narlene Harlingsworth, reported seeing three boys riding bikes, telling investigators that one of them rode out in front of her car and she almost hit him. She described one boy as a heavy set and wearing shorts. None of the victims, however, were wearing shorts when they died, and none of them matched the physical description, leading Ruff to believe this heavy set boy was someone else. Not to mention one of the three victims did have a skateboard. The fourth boy would have been hanging out with the victim shortly before their murders and could be a vital witness in this case. In a private group for Truth and Justice, a podcast created by Ruff, he asked his listeners about the potential of there being a fourth boy, and one sent him screenshots of a post made by a man named George Taylor. Taylor had written a post on Facebook claiming to have been with the boys on the day of their death. He said he was with them all afternoon and had even gone with them into the wooded area known as Robin Hood Hills. Ruff tracked down Taylor, and in an interview with the forgotten West Memphis Three, he claimed the boys were his childhood best friends. While Taylor initially said he only briefly saw Stevie on the day of the murders, he later claimed he was with Stevie, Christopher, and Michael. Hmm. He quotes, We get out of school, I went over Stevie's house for a little while, then we decided to go and get our bikes, and then we met up with the other two boys later. Stevie went home for a little while, I can't remember for how long it was, end quote. 
While Stevie was back at his house, Taylor said he almost got hit by a car. He even remembered that he was wearing green shorts, which appeared to corroborate Hollingsworth's account, as well as Woody's account of him seeing four boys entering the woods. After the incident, Taylor said he went into the woods with the boys, but he left after a few minutes, noting that he didn't see anyone else in the area. Ruff said, quote, I think it's possible he spent some time with Stevie, Michael, and Chris that day, but he seems to be adding to the story. Details like the green shorts are so specific. Who can remember a detail like that 26 years later? End quote. I mean, on a day like that, mm. finding out that your friends, your best friends got murdered, you're going to remember everything. Yeah, but this also, what he's about to say, okay. kind of... Hmm. Ruff then took Taylor for a ride through West Memphis, and Taylor seemed to have trouble remembering key facts, such as the location of Stevie's house and the pipe bridge used to enter Robin Hood Hills. Uh. Ruff said, quote, It doesn't add up, and I don't think that the overwhelming majority of the story that he's telling is accurate. I think he got caught up in the drama and excitement of some of those online forums and took something that was maybe rooted in truth, and the story grew into something that wasn't true, end quote. Okay. So mind you, also, the, the woods now, today... Like, mm -hmm. have been taken down. Okay. It just looks like a creek in an open area. So if he took him through this area, mm -hmm. he doesn't remember where his bestest friend in the whole wide world lived. Right. He remembers he had green shorts, but he also doesn't remember. Yeah. Like, the woods where they hung out when it's all open now. Come on. Since the murders occurred three decades ago, the case has received an exuberant amount of attention and several documentaries have chronicled the West Memphis Three's pleas of innocence, gaining support of celebrities like Johnny Depp, Peter Jackson, and Eddie Vedder along the way. Due to all the attention and storytelling surrounding the case, it's possible that the buzz could have altered witnesses' memories. Memories can be manipulated, and the media can play a role in that, such as the forgotten West Memphis Three points out. Because so much time has passed, it's also difficult to remember the events that occurred in 1993, and we might never know what truly happened. The world may never know. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time for part three of the West Memphis Three. Oh yeah, we're not done. Yeah, where we be going over theories more witness accounts and who we think could have committed this horrific crime as always please remember to follow us on anchor give us some love on glow grab your merch at the store follow the links in the show notes and hop on over to our facebook group for updates on upcoming episodes Later. Later.